Hello, my name is Jerry Maguire and you're listening to Parliamental, a new podcast that talks about Scottish politics from an insider's point of view. It's a fascinating time in Scotland. Um, less than eight months after a hugely engaging independence referendum campaign, Scotland delivered a historic result in the Westminster general election, voting in 56 SNP MPs. I'll be joined on this and future podcasts by my co-host, who is one of those famous 56 MPs. She led the local Yes Scotland team during NDRF, went on to break the BBC swingometer, and she's here with us now. I'd like to introduce the MP for Glasgow North East and SNP's Westminster spokesperson on civil liberties, Anne McLaughlin. Hi, Anne. Hello. <laughs> or should I say the Honourable Anne McLaughlin? No, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> um, Anne, can you... Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, okay, I'm quite old, so I've got quite a long background. I'm originally from Greenock, have lived in Glasgow for 30 years though, and uh, currently live in Deniston where I've been for about nine years. Uh, my background professionally is mainly in the charity sector for a long time in fundraising, and um, I was elected previously to the Scottish Parliament for a couple of years. I've been in the SNP for 27 years, and I've been active all of that time. And um, it was only ever going to be worth it to me, um, not if I got elected, but if we got our independence, and I think it's not too far off just now, so it's definitely worth it. You were an MSP before. What did you think about that experience? Oh, it was amazing. Although the funny thing is, I didn't want to do it when it happened. And I had to be, um, I, I won't say bullied, I had to be coerced into it by Nicola Sturgeon, who knew that I would love it. I, what happened was I was on the list. I had stood in the elections, hadn't got elected. And Bashir Ahmed, who was the first Muslim MSP, had been elected. And uh, when he passed away very suddenly in February 2009, uh, I realised I was next on the list. But the day before, I had decided that I didn't want to be a politician. And so I wouldn't be standing for election again. So uh, that's the irony of my life. These things always happen to me. But it was an amazing experience. Two years, and I loved nearly every minute of it. So... You've been an MSP. What did you do between then and the big event that happened recently in your life? What was what was your experience after being an, SM, an MSP? When I stopped being an MSP, um, they, they give you rather a large severance pay, I have to say. So I was able to do some voluntary work and I thought I could take my time finding another job. Uh, I then um, was asked to put myself forward for the Inverclyde by-election, the Labour MP there sadly passed away and I come from Inverclyde originally and all my family are there so I put myself forward, stood in that by-election got a good result but not good enough to win and then proceeded to carry on with voluntary work and look kind of meanderingly for a job and it was not as easy as I thought it was going to be um, I really struggled to find uh, other work um, and I ended up having to become self-employed and set myself up in business, and that's what I did. Did being self-employed, do you think, help in the run-up to the general election, where you had to, no doubt, just give up your entire life to, <laughs> to run the Glasgow North East? Yeah, it helped in that I was able to spend a lot more time on the campaign. Uh, had I not been elected, uh, the being self-employed uh, bit of it would have been a huge hindrance for me because it meant I could choose whether to work or not and I chose not to work, I chose to campaign which meant I had absolutely no income and the credit card reached its limit so had I not been elected I was really going to be in serious trouble um, so I was taking a, a bit of a risk but when you're obsessed 
um, with uh, you know what we can do for Scotland and what we can do for the people of Glasgow North East, you, you kind of put these things to the back of your mind and just tell yourself, I will win, and if I don't, I'll deal with it at the end. So it, being self-employed helped me to spend more time on the campaign. Yeah, you were really um, determined on that campaign. You sort of covered every every pavement in Glasgow North East, um, you're campaigning constantly. So with all that campaigning going on in Glasgow North East, what was it like then on the count on election night? So you've, you've worked your backside off, you've, you've spent all your money, you're just so invested in this moment, and then it's the day of the election, then on to the count. What was that like for you? Well, it was a bit strange. I mean, I'm so used to uh, working my backside off in campaigns and then not winning. So I know that hard work is not the end of the story. You need a lot of other things on your side. So on the night of the count, we had been advised, because we would likely be up all of the night and all of the next day, and we might have to make a speech, we might have to do media, we were told to go home, spend a couple of hours at home, and come into the count a wee bit later on. I was getting texts from my election agent, Angus, telling me, um, that I was doing very well and it's so not like him and I thought oh I wonder if we are or I wonder if he's just getting carried away out of character but carried away and then he sent me a text saying in fact you're hammering them and I thought that can't be true but of course it did speed me up a wee bit got to the count and um, it was really hard trying to stop the activists from proving from jumping for joy and hugging me and celebrating. I didn't want to be seen to be celebrating before the result was announced and before anything was definite. And also, I didn't really believe it. Um, and because anything can happen, it could be that they had the SNP sign on the Labour votes and really it was Labour who were hammering us. So um, it was hard trying to suppress all of that. And then, of course, when it became very obvious, it was hard trying to suppress you know, what I felt then. Overriding feeling was one of, I think, relief for everybody else because I wasn't the only one that exhausted myself. This was a, a campaign with a cast of dozens of people who gave up everything in order to win this election and get me elected. So I was so pleased that the, the process hadn't let them down, if you like. So yeah, it was a pretty amazing feeling. I mean, it was a huge swing. The SNP overall sort of um, took over the entirety of Scotland practically, um, mm -hmm. but especially in Glasgow North East, where it's such a Labour seat and it's historically been such a Labour seat. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you did to the swingometer? Well, any IT department in any company I've ever worked for, uh, the IT people very soon uh, come to the conclusion that I'm a jinx because I look at a computer and it breaks down. Or I used to, I'm trying to think positively now, uh, I look at the phone the wrong way and it stops ringing. And um, one of the guys that I'd worked with for a long time in, the, in an IT department sent me a message saying, I told you you were a jinx because um, I had broken the BBC swingometer. I didn't realise this until, I think it was two days later, I hadn't seen the coverage, you see. Um, but I was inundated with messages from people because we, the swingometer only goes up to 39%, and we got 39.3%, and it only goes up to 39% because it was unprecedented to go over that, and we actually ended up breaking the British record for political swings uh, of all time. So um, that, that to me, was 
almost as good as winning because it was a huge pat on the back for the campaign team and everyone involved and it said that those hours that they exhausted themselves and they got soaked and sometimes people weren't very nice to them and they gave up their jobs and everything it was all worth it um, because they'd achieved something unprecedented they'd achieved something nobody else had done so that was just that was fantastic and it's still fantastic because two weeks later people still keep coming up to me and saying you're the biggest swinger in British politics (laughs) (laughs) and I quite like that (laughs) to me that was a really defining image I remember I, I woke up quite early and I hadn't saw the result yet so I was waking up frantically trying to find the result and I'm in my bedroom and for some reason I get no mobile, mobile reception so I'm, I'm on Twitter and Facebook trying to find it and that was one of the first things that I saw was this broken graph <laughs> and this was Glasgow North East and it was yellow and it was, a, it was an amazing image to see I think that's a that's a CV point for the future that you broke yeah. the BBC swingometer <laughs> so I mean you live in the constituency in Glasgow North East um, the same way I do you represent this area you live here what do you think are going to be some of the the big challenges coming up for Glasgow North East that you want to focus on? Before I talk about the problems I want to say that one of the things I promised during the election campaign I would do if I was elected is I would highlight all the good stuff that's going on there's an awful lot of good stuff going on Jerry, as you probably know Um, and I think this area gets a bad name so I will be talking about a lot of the good stuff and a lot of the community groups where people are just very selflessly giving up their time for the benefit of others and you know I think it's incredible I know that other areas have the same but I really want this area's reputation to be a little bit better than it appears to be at the moment in terms of problems though one of the biggest problems is that we have one of the highest uh, proportions of people depending on uh, welfare benefits and there's two problems there one it means an awful lot of them are uh, wanting to work and there, there are not the jobs for them. Um, so I want to look at what I can do uh, to bring jobs to the area. And secondly, it means that people on benefits are uh, really suffering at the moment because, one, it's bad enough to live on you know a low income, or an income as low as welfare benefits um, is. But secondly, a lot of people are having their benefits taken off them, maybe because they're being told when they've got disabilities that they're fit enough to work when they're not, um, and they don't know how to fight it. Um, So I want to be doing that for them. I want to fight for them because it's happening unfairly in a lot of cases. But also there are people who are simply having their benefits sanctioned, um, and I just don't think there's any justification for that. I think, um, you know, there being sanctions for the most trivial of reasons, um, with no... There is a recourse, but people quite often don't know how to take it. Um, But even when, you know, they argue that their benefits are sanctioned for good reason, and they cite a good reason as didn't apply for enough jobs this week, look... I know that we need people to be making an effort to find work, but I've been unemployed, I've been long-term unemployed, and I know exactly how soul-destroying it is when you're applying for job after job after job, and A, people just don't get back to you, or B, they get back and say no, and no matter what you do, no matter how long you spend on that application form, no matter how much you try to impress, no matter how good you think you'd be in that job, you don't even get an interview, it's soul-destroying, so So if one week somebody can't face applying for another job, personally, I don't think the way to deal with that is to be uh, taking their benefits off them. I think the way to deal with that is to be offering them a bit more moral support. So that's 
just one of the things, welfare rights is going to be a massive issue for this constituency and it's something that I'm going to put a lot of resources into into fighting. You've mentioned before on the campaign that you were going to make sure you had staff available to help people through um, various applications and things like that. So how how are you going to approach that in Glasgow North East? What is it you're going to do to to make that actually happen for people? Okay, I'm going to have all of my staff will be based in Glasgow. I won't have anybody based at Westminster. Um, I think many constituencies can sustain that situation where, you know, I mean, some MPs have staff down in Westminster. And I understand that uh, because there's a lot to do down there. Every one of my staff will be based in Glasgow. Um, and on that staff team somebody will be expert in welfare rights. What I've actually decided is that everybody who's working for me will undergo some training in welfare rights Um, whether that's a primary part of the job or not I just think they need to understand it so somebody on my staff team will be a real expert in welfare rights Um, also I'll have somebody on the team who understands funding for uh, voluntary organisations, community groups, because the community groups that I've been singing the praises of, a lot of them are losing their funding, but they don't understand necessarily that there are many funding sources that they could be using. I don't want to commit, overcommit the time of my staff, but I'm looking at trying to make it a monthly day where any community group can come along and they can find out about all the different funders that could fund the work that they do, the sort of language that funders use, the sort of things they're asking you in these application forms, what kind of answers are they looking for, common mistakes that people make when they're applying for funding. And so we'll be training them in how to make the most of the funding opportunities out there in order to be able to sustain these groups uh, longer term. So that's two things, two areas of expertise, welfare rights and uh, funding for local groups. I think that is also a really big difference from what's happened in this constituency in the past. There doesn't seem to have been a presence from the representative. And it must be quite tempting for you and anybody who's in a position to come from an area, and as you've just experienced in the past few weeks, go down to the palace and have you know all that, that whirlwind tour. Mm. So it must be quite, I can see for, for some people that must be quite challenging to try and keep their feet on the ground. Mm. Um, I've reached the grand old age of, well, I'm not going to tell you what age I am, but <laughs> anyway, quite old. Um, and I've, I've managed to keep my feet firmly on the ground. Um, but I do see, having been there for the last couple of weeks, I do see how people can get carried away and how people can get sucked into that world because you're surrounded by people whose job it is to make your life easier, which is really nice, but, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of uncomfortable feeling for myself and most of the SNP MPs. Um, but, yeah, I can see how they, when you're in Westminster... I read somewhere there are 32 restaurants and they're subsidised um, and there are several bars. I might have got that figure wrong, actually. I've not seen 32 of them. But, you know, you, you could go into Westminster and really literally only come out to go to sleep and then go back again. And I think a lot of people... It's a nice, comfortable lifestyle for them. And I can see why folk would like spending their time there. Me, it's nice, but I'm really anxious to get back to Glasgow. And when when I'm told things like, next Thursday, I can't come back, I have to wait till the Friday morning. Well, I want to stay for the thing on the Thursday night, I do. But the idea of not actually getting back till Friday 
Um, I, I find ah, it's driving me mad. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm desperate to get back to Glasgow and get into working for the people of Glasgow North East. I know when I'm down there, my job is to represent them. And that's why it's important for me that I've got a really good staff team. But I want to be doing the stuff that the staff are doing, so it's quite frustrating mm. for me. Yeah, I suppose it's that balance between your 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 daily work, I suppose, will be in Westminster. That's where you're going to vote on things. That's where you're going to take part in committees. That's where you're going to be the spokesperson for civil liberties. Mm. But that's only part of the work. And it does seem, though, that the the, the, the organisation's sort of set up to keep you there as long as possible. Yeah. To keep you down in Westminster and keep you there rather than go back... Go back to your home constituency. Um, this week, the SNP, well, in the past week's SNP going down to Westminster was quite a big news story. And we've seen quite a lot of pictures and photographs and stories about what the 56 MPs, sort of their experiences have been down there. I think you, one of your tweets made it onto BuzzFeed and the BBC News, <laughs> etc. a picture of Mary Black with a plate of chips, um, which shows you how, how revolutionary someone dares <laughs> to eat chips in Westminster. Mm. Um, what was that like for you? So you've, 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 you know, you were elected... You've had a, you know, probably up for 36, 48 hours, and then very quickly you're sort of shepherded down to Westminster. How did that experience go for you? I, do you know what? It, it felt fine. I felt um, you just get carried away with the kind of flow. Uh, you just go with the tide, and it was fine. It was good because I was down there with 55 friends, you know, and I had Graham, my partner, with me. Um, but you were down there with a lot of people, some people that I've known for, for all of the 27 years that I've been in the party. But, yeah, it was pretty exhausting, but, um, you know, they put you up in a nice hotel with a nice comfy bed. Not that I got to sleep much, but, you know, <laughs> when I was sleeping, I was in a nice comfortable bed. You know, they feed you, and, you know, so I really can't complain. My first day, though, was a bit of a uh, um, chaotic day. <laughs> Um, I didn't know that you couldn't put pay cash on London buses, so um, I tried to pay cash and I got kicked off the bus in the nicest possible way. But uh, a very polite a, kicking off. A very polite kicking off. He was lovely, the bus driver, but there was no way he could accept my money. And then I couldn't find anywhere to buy an Oyster card. Then I found somewhere eventually after a nice policeman directed me. Got on the bus, got to the hotel. The hotel had no record of my booking phoned the travel company who couldn't understand my accent. So I had to come off the phone and I felt like lying down in the ground and crying and saying, take me back to Glasgow, because all this time, I mean, I, I had arranged to be there a couple of hours early for my appointment, and my appointment was with the 55 other MPs and Nicola Sturgeon to get what they were calling an iconic photograph taken outside the Houses of Parliament. And I thought... I don't want to miss Iconic, I want to be in it. And so eventually sorted out the hotel with minutes to spare, running across the bridge to Westminster. Didn't know whereabouts in Westminster I was going, it's a big place. So I thought I would jump in a cab, because cab drivers know everything. Mm-hmm. And I said, can you take me to New Palace Yard? And he said, I don't know where that is. <laughs> and so that was no good. And then I finally found it myself after paying the taxi. Um, and I spoke to a policeman who said, oh, you can't go in there, you don't have a pass. And I said, well, what can I do? And he said, I don't know, and walked away. And at that stage, I just thought, right, I give up, I give up. But it all got sorted in the end. But it was all a bit chaotic, and but it was lovely as well. It was nice to be in the place. It was, it was nice to get the staff reaction, the staff who worked mm. down there. 
seemed uh, really pleased and they've told us they're really pleased that we're there because we know their names they know we let them call us by our first name which to me is ridiculous what else would they call us so um, what, what is it they used to what is it they normally have to refer to people as is it well many of them would say to me um would you like me to address you as Ms. McLaughlin and I was like, no, I'd like you to address me as Anne, please. <laughs> um, but they're not used to that, apparently. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, I mean, I'm sure there will be some, but that surprised me. But it must be true, because so many of them said, you know, that we're so much friendlier. And they, the six that we had initially were so much friendlier. Uh, and they were expecting us to be the same. And we were the same. And we say please and thank you, and we're quite courteous. And apparently, that's quite unusual as well. It's strange how that what you've just described has been sort of portrayed if you weren't paying attention to it it's been portrayed as the SNP MPs have been in kicking up a stink making you know being disrespectful etc but it doesn't sound like you're being disrespectful sounds like you're being respectful to just maybe different folk yeah we've been very respectful to the canteen staff to the uh, common staff to the doormen and women um, to the police officers in fact I have to say, we're very respectful to the other MPs and to the lords and ladies. Um, but, you know, I'm just, we're just as respectful to them as we are to everybody else. There's nobody is getting special treatment from us. But, no, there's been nothing disrespectful. I mean, all the stuff in the papers is all wildly exaggerated. And sometimes, you know, telling the tale of what actually happened is just... There's no point because... You know, they'll believe what they want to believe. I watched you swear in on live on video. And um, I didn't swear. You didn't swear in. What was no. it you took the what was it take an oath? What's the what's the technical term for it? You you can either you can swear on a religious book mm. or not. And I actually hadn't decided when I got there. I couldn't decide. Should I swear on the Bible or should I I think that's the oath and if you do it without a religious book it's an affirmation. And, um, yeah, I just couldn't decide what to do. And then I, I think he just put a New Testament in front of me. <laughs> just one of the many He probably books. just got fed up with me dithering <laughs> about. Um, so that's what I did in the end. Yep, and I, I did my oath. It looked like graduation. You're on a big line in this big, nice, <laughs> nice big building and you were waiting. Yeah. I saw you having to make small talk. I think you were they were backed up quite a bit before they could get to the speaker. Yeah. So you were sort of, you were hanging about. Because the speaker was paying special attention to some of the new members um, so yeah there was a bit of a log jam it didn't feel like graduation to me what it felt like because I had to put my hand up and swear to do my duty to the Queen and country it felt a bit like when I was in the brownies and you had to do that <laughs> affirmation or maybe that was an oath um, I promised to do my best to do my duty to God to to serve the Queen and I can't remember the rest of it but it felt a wee bit like when I was in the brownies so um, it was quite funny So you've been down in Westminster and back up a few times now so what have you been up to in the, the past week once all the you've been there you've been through all the, the, the pain and suffering of trying to get the place and trying to get in and you've, you've, you've sworn in now um, what is it you're doing now so what's, what's the past week been like in Westminster for you? The past week um for me, it was quite busy because I had people, some of the branch members came down to watch me being sworn in, came down and stayed a few days. Um, so I've been, I hadn't managed to do the tour of the parliament that the new MPs do in the first week. So I did that, but I did it with the, those branch members and family members in tow. 
And we don't have offices there yet because it's a bit difficult for them when they're used to housing six of us and now they've got to house 56. So um, we've been hot desking. We've got a couple of rooms that we can hot desk and I've been hot desking in the Disraeli room. So, yeah, just trying to deal with constituency cases. I'm quite behind with it because obviously I'm doing it by myself and I'm still going to see HR about employing staff and then speaking to... IPSA, no idea what it stands for, but it's the allowances team and speaking to them about um, the cost of offices and equipping the offices and stuff like that. So I feel like I've got this ginormous to-do list and I'm not getting through it very quickly. And then, of course, every so often you're at your hot desk and the WIP staff will come in and say, um, you need it down in the chamber, so then you have to just hot-foot it down to the chamber. It's quite interesting, though. I mean, I was in the chamber when the speaker got sworn in and then David Cameron and George Osborne, and it's a strange sensation seeing them close up in the flesh and hearing them and, and um, yeah, realising that they are real. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I knew that anyway, but, yeah, so I just, I don't know, I couldn't tell you what I've done. I've, and then we have group meetings and then we had other meetings to be told if we were going to be spokespersons or not. And obviously I was given the civil liberties role, which means I'll be part of the team that will be hopefully leading the charge in terms of uh, keeping the Human Rights Act. So I've got a lot of reading to do on that. You think you know something until you realise that you actually have to know it. Yeah, because I mean, I'd imagine that the amount of legislation that must be behind that will be huge. Mm. So it's, it's, from, a, from a punter's point of view, there's a lot of principled stands you can take, but there's going to be a lot of detail in that and you're going to have the full weight of conservative oppression coming at you about their desire to strip the, you know, um, strip that out of our legislation. So it's going to be quite a lot of homework for you as well as yeah. the constituency issues you're going to have to deal with. And also the team that I'm in, so it's led by Joanna Cherry, who's a QC and she is one of the Edinburgh MPs. So she's spokesperson on justice and home affairs. And it, so she's a QC and in the team, she's got Richard Arkless, who's a lawyer, and Angela Crawley, who's a lawyer, she's doing uh, equalities, women and children. And then Stuart MacDonald, the Cumbernauld Stuart MacDonald, there's two Stuart MacDonalds, um, and he's an immigration lawyer. Um, so they all have legal backgrounds. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I suppose I have my two years in the Scottish Parliament, but I don't have a legal background. So, yeah, but I, I mean, they'll all be pretty supportive and, yeah, lots of reading, lots of understanding. I think it's, it's one of the strengths of all the MPs that have been elected is that their backgrounds are all so different. You know, it's very easy, yeah. I think, if you look at a parliament to see, you know, 75% lawyers. And it's quite nice to see people that, yeah, we've still got lawyers in, but maybe they're mm. immigration lawyers yeah. or they're people from a different background. Yeah. So it's good that you've got that, that peer support group where you can all pull your knowledge, basically. Yeah. And at the moment, everyone is just incredibly supportive of everyone else. There's no jostling for attention. We all know anyway that um, unless you're married, you're not going to get all the attention. <laughs> so I never got invited on Lorraine Kelly, despite <laughs> somebody saying I was the Lorraine Kelly of Scottish politics. <laughs> so um, yeah, Mary Black is getting uh, lots and lots of attention. So, But there's no real jostling for position. We all know that what we need to do is do a really good job in our constituencies and, and really fight to defend the people of Scotland and that's what we're all motivated to do. So everyone's supporting everyone else to do that. It's, it's a good feeling. And the next week coming up, what, what have you got coming up in the next 
seven days or the next five days or four days that you're going to be stuck in Westminster? Well, I'm going down on Monday night because I've got meetings in Westminster on uh, Tuesday morning. And then I've got, I think I've got a full day where I can catch up in the hot desking place. I can catch up on all the things that, that are on that to-do list. Um, group meeting at night. And then, of course, there's the Queen's speech. Um, the, the official state opening of Parliament is on Wednesday, I think. And the Queen's speech debate starts on Wednesday, carries on on Thursday. Thursday night, um, Brendan O'Hara has got his adjournment debate on uh, safety at Faz Lane. Mm. And Brendan um, has broken with convention because he it, it, nobody's ever done this before. Normally you make your maiden speech before you do anything like that, but there's nothing to stop somebody going for an adjournment debate. So that will be his maiden speech, um, although it won't be treated as such. Your maiden speech, you're not supposed to be particularly political. I expect he will be in this one. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously I don't... I think it's not compulsory for us to sit in on this, but I'm going to anyway, because we've agreed that we'll support each other with our first speeches in Parliament. But because Faslane is such an important issue, I want to be there. When you give a maiden speech yourself, what, so if it's not meant to be political, what, what's the content of it? Hi, everyone. Well, thanks for inviting me along. Um, yeah. <laughs> Basically, I should pay tribute to my predecessor and then describe the constituency and the issues facing the constituency and it's not going to be possible to do that without being political and also it's kind of not possible to be me without being political <laughs> so I, I'm really not sure how I'm going to do that and uh, the, there was an office within Westminster who said they could offer help with drafting your maiden speech and I was tempted and then I thought no because they'll just they'll just make it really apolitical. Yeah they'll knock all the edges it. off it and it'll become yeah. a... It's better if I just go in and um, say, oh, I didn't realise when I come out. Although now that I've said that on this radio program. And you're caught now. You're caught when you get, <laughs> when you get torn in. Um, but it must be difficult. I mean, how do you feel about that, about standing up in front of the, the Commons and, and delivering a speech? It's, it's the same as delivering a speech anywhere, I suppose, but in such a historic context. Yeah, no, I actually surprisingly feel fine. Maybe I wouldn't feel fine when it comes to doing it, because apart from anything else, it's not like the Scottish Parliament where you've got a podium and you can put your notes down and you might not read from your notes, but at least they're there. Mm -hmm. You don't have anywhere to put your notes. So it's more practical things that I'm thinking about. Um, but I actually feel really unintimidated by that chamber. As I say, that might change, but... You know what? I just can't help feeling, you know, I have as much right to be there as any of these people who are... Do I'm there to try and make people's lives better, whereas I'm facing people who are actively doing things to make the lives of my constituents worse. That may not be their motivation, but it's the result of what they do, and they've no more right to be there than I have. I got the biggest swing in British politics. <laughs> that's, that's your maiden speech. That's you That'll be open, my maiden speech, yeah. the, biggest, the biggest swing in general election history. But I'm not feeling... It's probably because of the two years that I had in the Scottish Parliament, because I have to say, when I made my maiden speech in the Scottish Parliament, I was shaking like <laughs> a leaf. Probably be shaking like a leaf this time as well and probably forget everything I was supposed to say. My mouth will dry up. All the things you don't want to happen. Um, I think it's always quite healthy to feel nervous 
um, it tends to lead to a better performance. But right now, I just will look forward to it and I don't feel at all intimidated. Yeah, not many people get the chance to do two maiden speeches to Parliament. I know. <laughs> You'll be one of the few people who get to. I think there's about 10 people who've been members of both of those parliaments. But, you know, I still need to be elected to the European Parliament to, um, <laughs> to equal Winnie Ewing. So. <laughs> I'm going to get the hat trick. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll do that. <laughs> Well, that was our first episode of Parliamental. Um, and how do you think that went? I think um, I'm pretty good at talking endlessly. So <laughs> <laughs> I just turned my mic off for half of this. This is pretty good. Um, well, we hope you enjoyed listening to it at home too. Um, Anne and I will return every fortnight, if she's about, um, to talk about Westminster, Glasgow North East and, well, your adventures down there. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can contact us on Twitter at ParlamentalPod. On Facebook, search for Parliamental, and on the email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Anne will be very busy getting to know Westminster, gearing up to battle the attempted dismantling of the Human Rights Act, and tying Dennis Skinner's shoelaces together. <laughs> um, but I will put your comments to Anne, and hopefully we can talk about them the next time we're here. Um, so please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. Bye. Bye. Bye.